0: Evidence and Answers. How do we live with our deepest differences? In a world torn by religious conflict, the threats to human dignity are terrifyingly real. Some societies face harsh government repression and brutal sectarian violence, while others are divided by bitter conflicts over religion's place in public life. Is there any hope for living together peacefully? You're listening to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zuchran. Pat is an author and teacher in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today, Pat's guest, Dr. Oz Guinness, argues that the way forward for the world lies in promoting freedom of religion and belief for people of all faiths. He presents a vision of a civil, global public square and how it can be established by championing the freedom of the soul, freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. For a world desperate for hope at a critical juncture of human history, here's a way forward. For the good of all. Let's join Pat now as he discusses this topic with Dr. Oz Guinness.
1: Welcome to Evidence and Answers. And this week we have a wonderful guest with us again, Dr. Oz Guinness. Dr. Guinness has a doctorate from Oxford University, is a prolific writer and social critic. He is the author of several wonderful books that you will want to read. He was once a freelance reporter with the British broadcasting channel, a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution, and a guest scholar at the Woodrow Wilson Center for International Studies. And from 1986 to 1989, he served as the executive director of the Williamsburg Charter Foundation, a bicentennial celebration of the First Amendment. And in this position, he helped to draft the Williamsburg Charter, which was signed by former presidents Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford, chief justices William Rehnquist and Warren Berger, Coretta Scott King, Elie Wiesel, and several members of Congress and many others. Dr. Guinness regularly speaks before leaders of countries and before the Congress and the British House of Commons and in front of world leaders throughout the world. So we're very privileged to have Dr. Guinness with us again. Welcome to the show, Dr. Oz
2: Guinness. Well, thank you. real pleasure to be back with you.
1: Well, we're talking about a book that you've just published, The Global Public Square. Now, the theme of this book is how do we live with our deepest differences, especially when those differences are religious and ideological, and very especially when those differences concern matters of our common public life. How do we create a global public square and make the world safer for diversity? Dr. Guinness, tell us a little bit about this book and why you needed to write it.
2: Well, you put the problem there, the challenge of living with our deep differences, and you can see a tragic, explosive example of it really throughout the Middle East with the Sunni Muslims fighting the Shia Muslims and so on. But you can see in countries like China, you have persecution. In countries like Nigeria or Pakistan and India, you have sectarian violence. And so you've got an incredible global challenge. And my argument is that the answer to it is to establish religious freedom, freedom of conscience, for people of all faiths and no faith. Now, there's no chance of establishing it in the Middle East tomorrow. But the tragedy is that here in America, where we had the most, what you might call, the most nearly perfect solution the world's ever seen, what James Madison called the true remedy for the problem. For the last 50 years, we've virtually abandoned the system the framers set up, And America is becoming part of the problem, not part of the answer. So we've got to begin here.
1: Now, indispensable to solving the challenge, you state, is what you call soul freedom. You touched on it a bit. Explain to us exactly what you mean by soul
2: freedom. Well, the term comes from Roger Williams, a wonderful Christian dissident in the 16th century who was English, but had tremendous problems in England and came across here to the U.S., and was the founder, as you probably know, of Rhode Island. And it was the first place in the world that guaranteed freedom of conscience, religious freedom for people of all faiths, including what he called Mohammedans, Muslims, and what he called infidels, in other words, atheists. It wasn't just for Jews and Christians. And so that's what I mean by soul freedom, religious freedom in its deepest foundational way, but for everybody, not tolerance, but freedom.
1: Now, I can hear some people out there saying, well, I don't know about religious freedom for all, Dr. Guinness. I mean, radical Islam, those who preach racism, you know, the KKK and other groups, I don't know if we want to give them religious freedom.
2: Well, racism and the KKK, that's not really religious freedom. Nor really is the homosexual issue. Religious freedom would certainly cover Islam. Now, we've got to say... The question is, how do they behave, this is in Arab sense, when they're in our tent? So you take the American past. The greatest achievement of America is the motto, A Pluribus Unum, out of many, one, out of diversity, unity. Now that assumed and required that Americans previously understood what the unity was, what were the uniting principles that were true of all Americans whether they were Irish, Italians, English, Scottish, Chinese, whatever. The trouble is we've lost that today. So when people come to this country now, and you mentioned Muslims, Americans are not sure who they are, and we're not sure how we should ask people to behave in our country. In other words, the problem here is us. If we were clear who we are, and we're clear how we're asking people to behave. For example, the Muslim radicals want a caliphate. They don't want the Constitution. But when they come to this country, they should be taught, you're in our tent now. These are the things that matter to us the rule of law, equal opportunity, religious freedom, etc., etc. And this is what it means. For example, religious freedom always means you persuade rather than coerce. So in Europe, under the state churches, you had coercion. Incredible evils, the Inquisition and so on. But none of that here, because if you want to change people's minds, you persuade them rather than coerce them. And you have to teach. That's the way we do it here. Now, if we don't teach that, then of course, they will run a Mack truck through our openness and bring the system down.
1: You know, the Bible teaches the dignity and value of all human life. And therefore, as you stated, we do not force people to believe in christ but we try to persuade them by the power of our arguments and and this was the example of jesus and his early followers but in religions and philosophies that do not share this value and dignity of all human life i mean is it possible to achieve soul freedom in such a culture
2: well again it has to be taught that was the old assumption was that in a free society an open free society everybody's born free all citizens but not all are worthy of it or equal to it. They have to be taught how to do it. And that was called liberal education, education for liberty. Or later it was called civic education, how citizens behave. But the trouble in America is that's collapsed since the 1960s. No no one's teaching it. So not surprisingly, they just come in and argue for their own ways. So again, I would insist the problem is us, not them. They're in our tent and they should be taught how to behave or how we behave in our tent.
1: I see. Now, how did the culturally turbulent times of the 60s and postmodernism contribute to the confusion that surrounds the concept of human dignity, liberty, and equality today?
2: Well, a very good question, because you can see, you know, the 60s was the most culturally decisive decade in the 20th century, more important than the Depression years and culturally more important than World War II, decisive though that was. But many of the seeds of the problems we have today were sown in the 1960s. You mentioned postmodernism. The heart of what it's produced here is a very profound relativism that says there's no such thing as truth. What we call truth is really an agenda and a bid for power, and that's absolutely deadly. Or again, you mentioned equality. It was the French Revolution, not the American, that put equality above liberty. Now, the simple fact is the humans are not naturally equal. Whether it's brain power or prowess in sports, you need to look at the Olympics to see the quality is absolutely ludicrous. So when you force equality, what's called equality of outcome, it's artificial, which means you're leveling the people who are not equal, and you're giving power to the umpire, which enforces it, which is naturally the state, and you're appealing to resentment. People who are unequal like to level other people like them. And so the 60s idea that equality should trump liberty, which you can see in many areas in America today, is absolutely disastrous. And it's also un-American.
1: Well, Dr. Guinness, how do we change that trend? I mean, it's a very difficult uphill battle to change the ideology of a culture, society that's going a different direction.
2: Well, we haven't been in there arguing. In other words, I mentioned persuasion earlier. We should have been in the public square. And the fact is, in the 60s, many Christians, most evangelicals, were out of it. And so the ideas captured the public square when evangelicals went into it you can't turn the tide back simply by politics. You've got to get in there and argue many, many things, including the philosophies, and we've got to live it. So another thing you mentioned rightly was dignity. You know, and I was a student in the 60s, all secular humanists would have said they believed in human dignity. But then you can see that 40, 50 years later, many of them are speaking now against dignity, and they're realizing their notion of human dignity was borrowed from Judaism and borrowed from the Christian faith, and under the terms of atheism, they have no foundation for it. And you can see now there's an article from Stephen Pinker up at Harvard called The Stupidity of Dignity, another one called The Uselessness of Dignity. So this is incredibly serious. Liberty is being undermined is being undermined, many of the things that are foundational to a free society are being eroded and assaulted and dismissed. And there will be consequences. We're sowing the wind, and you can expect to reap the whirlwind, and we're beginning to.
1: Now, you state in your book that there are three trends that must be recognized and confronted. First, when freedom of thought, conscience, and religion is recognized as civilization flourishes. Second, restrictions Two, these human rights are growing in Western countries that once championed these freedoms. And third, the greatest obstacle is a new menace from the West, disdain for religion and aggressive atheism. Explain those points for us a little bit.
2: Well, I've said it in some ways in the background of what we said already, but you can see that the major problems around the world are first state oppression, countries like China that are brutal, people who are different from them or say around brutal to the christians and to the baha'i the second huge problem is sectarian violence that i mentioned but the tragedy is it's a lesser problem but we in the west are not living up to our great past so we are no longer an answer and among many of the things you can see one is simply when religion is discounted religious liberty is also dismissed in other words Religious freedom is just dismissed, it's freedom for the religious. And people who are secular say, well, I'm not religious. But the fact is, they have a worldview too. So some worldviews are transcendental. Some worldviews, varieties of Buddhism and, say, atheism, are naturalistic. But they're still worldviews. And we've got to say to our atheist friends, you can't just say, I'm an atheist. That's what you don't believe. You don't believe in God or gods or the supernatural, but what do you believe? That's the real challenge you've got to face, and that's the problem with your solution. So whenever religion is discounted, as it's being today, particularly under the new atheist assault, religious freedom is discounted, and that's really foolish. Because all the studies show it's countries that respect religious freedom for everybody that thrive, and there are reasons for that.
1: Yeah, give us some of those reasons why they thrive where there's religious freedom. Many people are afraid of opposing religious views and ideologies, but tell us why does it flourish when religious freedom is
2: recognized? Well, one simple answer is what's called civil society. As you know, there's a huge discussion in the last 50 years or so. Societies are healthy if between individual citizens and the government and the state. There is a thick layering of organizations in which people can join, volunteer, participate, give money, give time, and work freely for the visions they want to advance. And of course, for many, uh, in the early days, many of these were Christian organizations, and you can see the impact on charity, the impact on reform movements, like the abolition of slavery, or the impact on the rise of education, and so on. So it's when religious freedom flourishes that civil society flourishes. And if you choke off religious freedom, what you do is kill the goose that lays the golden egg. Take, it, for instance, the Obama health care mandates, you know, that hit the Catholic Church and a number of other Christian organizations. Well, it's a simple fact that nobody in the world has more caring hospitals than the Catholic Church. There are many evangelical ones, too, but they have more than anyone else in the world. So by stifling their ability to act freely according to their faith, you're actually killing the goose that lays the golden egg. And one day, these bright, illiberal liberals are going to go out and discover there's no egg in the morning. The fact is they've killed the goose that's laying it. And you can see this in place after place, the folly of what I call illiberal liberalism.
1: That's a great term. I see. Now, you know, you have some skeptics saying, well, you know, Dr. Guinness in China, they enforce their Marxism on the people and suppress religion, and Mm -hmm. that country seems to be doing well. But you say soul freedom is essential for a country to survive. How would you address those who would bring that up?
2: Well, the Chinese know very well that like a sort of steam kettle... The forces of capitalism, on the one hand, and the forces of technology, take, say, cell phones and the Internet, on the other hand, are creating pressures that could well blow Marxism apart. And so they're incredibly leery of these forces. And at the same time, they have huge problems between cities like Shanghai and the countryside, which is so poor, as well as things like corruption, because as an atheist regime, they have no ethical values at all. And there's no rule of law. So at the moment, the government is extremely oppressive, shamefully so. But at the same time, that's not likely to last because of the pressures that I mentioned. But of course, it need not necessarily go a good way. It could go a bad way, too. We've got to watch that and pray and work in every way we can to do what we can to make it go a good way.
1: Well, on those lines, what does it mean to argue for right over might and principle over policy, then?
2: Well, you know that ever since postmodernism came in, the idea was there's no such thing as right and wrong, truth and false and so on. Everything's really a matter of power. Well, if you take that view, you can see that all that's left is power, coercion, manipulation and so on. Absolutely disastrous, whether this country or whether it's China. You need truth to stand against manipulation. As as Solzhenitsyn used to say, one word of truth outweighs the entire world. And he was a one-man dissident who virtually brought down the Soviet Union. And equally, you need truth and virtue to ensure freedom. And Americans who dismiss truth and freedom and virtue, once again, are being incredibly foolish. They don't understand the history of freedom, and they don't understand the suicidal effects of their own policies and their own attitudes. So we've got to get these sound foundational, sounds abstract, freedom, virtue, things like this. But we've got to have a debate, rather like the founding fathers did, and really say, what kind of a society do we, do we want to be? Do we really want to have freedom? Do we really understand and want to have freedom of conscience, etc., etc.? and debate these things, and not just slug it out in a kind of culture-warring way?
1: You know, in order to have standard of truth and virtue and a universal moral ethical law. Really, a belief in God or a Creator is foundational to all of this, isn't it, Dr. Guinness? And, and how do we deal in a society that's going secular and rejecting the knowledge of God? I think acknowledging God and His universal moral law is essential to having an absolute standard of truth and a moral law. Well,
2: society is not actually going secular. They're real hardcore secularists, A minority. You see a rise in what's called the nuns, the religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S. But many of those are what's called, you know, the social sciences, those who believe without belonging, and sometimes those who belong without believing. In other words, frankly, people are often fed up with the churches as they've seen them, but they're not actually atheists or secularists. So actually what's happened in America, America's going radically pluralistic and sadly also relativistic in in the sense that people have forgotten the whole notion of truth and you have a kind of apathetic indifference to what anyone, you know, whatever, the teenagers, whatever, or the Frenchman's shrug of the shoulder. But that too is highly dangerous. But once again, we've got to get out there in public and say, you know, as Richard Weaver did, ideas have consequences. How do you ground freedom? How do you ground human dignity? And if you can't, what will be the consequences? Will we see new Dr. Mengele, the people who in World War II experimented so viciously with kids and others? Well, we're going to see all sorts of incredibly cruel things if the current ideas have their way. But what we've got to do is go out and argue. And let not just talk about Christians or conservatives, but really go out there and argue in the public arena.
1: Now, how do Christians get back into the public arena. Well, first of all, tell us why do you think Christians retreated out of the public arena?
2: Well, right up until the 1960s, the dominant American denomination tradition was Protestant liberalism. And there was the heyday in the 50s of people, great thinkers like Reinhold Niebuhr. But the heirs of that committed suicide in the 60s with their crazy ideas. And since then, we've seen a gentle competition between Catholics, who were really not in it originally, but have very powerful views of public life, and evangelicals with the rise of the Christian right. But sadly, Catholics have tarnished themselves badly, at least for 25 years, because of the sexual abuse scandals, and evangelicals have done the same because of the extremes of the religious right. So this is the first time in American history where no Christian tradition has dominant in its influence in public life, and that's incredibly faithful. When you look at evangelicals, before the religious right, most evangelicals were pietistic, which is wonderful, but they were also privatized, which is not wonderful. In other words, their faith was privately engaging, publicly relevant. And of course, that meant we had no say in public life. And many who've now tried to have a say think they can do it just through numbers, and political activism. You can't. You've also got to win the arguments and win the debates. So we've got to be in there, in the public square. Now that, of course, assumes the ability to we began: persuasion. The Christian word for that is good apologetics, but that's rather a missing art in much of the church today. So in the public square, that's not the place to preach. It's not the place to proclaim. It's not the place only to protest. We have to persuade, and if we don't, we won't win the arguments.
1: You bring up a great point. Here in the state of Hawaii, you see the culture war being fought out here in the public square, and it appears that the Christians are really retreating in that battle. You know, prayer has been—I think we're the only state where they do not allow prayer in our state legislature. The churches are now being sued over their use of the public schools. And in other numerous arenas, it appears that though there is a big Christian population here in the state of Hawaii, the church appears to be going into retreat. And a lot of the arguments I hear in the public arena are what you call maybe preaching and lacking the power to persuade a non-Christian or a hostile audience, exposing the error of their position and, you know, the power of the ideas of the Christian worldview. Is that what you see going on in a lot of these culture wars around our country?
2: Sadly, it's not only Hawaii. There are two huge mistakes that the Christian right has made in various places. Not everyone, but many of them. First, to trust politics to do more than politics can do. It used to be said, the first thing to say about politics is that politics is not the first thing. And many Christians have thought that by putting our people in power, or whatever it is, they could turn things around. You can't. second mistake they've often made is to try and, let's put it in 19th century terms, to try to do the Lord's work, but in the world's way. So Jesus told us, for example, all his disciples to love our enemies, to forgive without limit. But much of the Christian right and the activism has demonized and stereotyped the enemies and appealed to to fear, and so on. So we've got to do it in a Christian way. That includes being persuasive. And that's what, sadly, is very much lacking in much of Christian public speech today.
1: Well, Dr. Guinness, how do we construct, then, a civil public square?
2: Well, you've got to have a statesman-like visionary, like Lincoln, in the Civil War, who will stand above the culture wars and say, shame on both your houses. Neither of these extremes does justice to the brilliance of the American way and the genius of the American founders. Here's a better way. We want freedom of conscience for everybody, and it means this and this and this and this, and spell it out. And then when people start to accept that vision, it's got to be translated down into stories and textbooks for the public schools. So you have education again because you remember Alexis de Tocqueville, a great Frenchman who wrote Democracy in America he argued that freedom was not just established by law that's a great mistake. Law is important but it's established when it's alive in the habits of the heart. In other words parents teach their children teachers teach their students and then it becomes a habit of the heart second nature and then freedom, freedom of conscience and all these good things they're alive, and we've got to build them back into American citizens again.
1: Those are fantastic words. You know, Dr. Guinness, our show is heard uh, throughout the United States, Hawaii, and now throughout Asia. And I was just wondering as we conclude here on your book, The Global Public Square, do you have any final words understanding our, a lot of our audiences out there in Asia? Any final words uh, that you like to say? Or exhortations. Well, for I, you know, I,
2: was, I was born in Asia and spent my first 10 years there and go back a lot. I'll be back in October in Beijing and in Hong Kong. Asia, of course, is the part of the world that really is the edge of the future. And I hope we'll have Christians and statesmen in Asia who will think of some of these grand global questions and look at constructive answers for humanity. Now, the trouble is take, say, the Syrian crisis again. A lot of people are alarmist and fear mongering. You know, this is the end of the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, Our Lord said, the Bible says from beginning to end, have no fear. And my longing is the Christians will be in the forefront of really working out just free solutions in the interests of humanity for the next 50, 100 years. And, of course, Asian Christians and leaders are incredibly important in that.
1: Fantastic. You've been listening to Dr. Oz Guinness And a wonderful book that he has produced, The Global Public Square, along with numerous other books that you'll want to read from Dr. Guinness. So, Dr. Oz Guinness, thanks for being on the show once
2: again. Enormous privilege. Thank you, and God bless you. God bless you.
0: This concludes Pat's interview with Dr. Oz Guinness on The Global Public Square. If you would like to hear this interview along with Pat's other interviews with Dr. Guinness, log on at evidenceandanswers.org. Pat is the director of the Pacific Apologetics Center, a subsidiary ministry of the Bible Institute of Hawaii. Pat's ministry relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you've been blessed by this show, please support Pat in prayer and with a financial gift by logging on at EvidenceAndAnswers.org. Join us again next week as Pat and his friends continue to present reasons for faith and hope in Christ. This radio show is brought to you by our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions for more than 20 years. To learn more, please visit their website at HCM mlp.com. Join us here next week or on the web for more evidence and answers.